Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2022. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Stefan Gagne, he, him. Stefan, thanks so much for reaching out to us to come on and chat about your fanfiction experience and doing it during your week off work. We're cutting into your vacation time here. I don't know, this is the kind of thing I like during our vacations, you know? <laughs> I guess it's work for us. It's not work for you. <laughs> yeah, you get to experience the joy of labor while I sit back and chat. <laughs> I don't know. I'm experiencing the joy already. We've already been chatting a little bit. so. But I'm excited to, to, to kind of do this this interview, as it were, this conversation, whatever we're calling it, because I recently played like eight hours of Arcade Spirits. So, hell yeah. I think here it's worth mentioning that, Stefan, you are a former fan fiction writer, and that is the the way that we've approached you in this uh, podcast about old fan fiction a couple of times. But you're also a current, uh, I mean, I, I, I was about to say professional uh, video game writer, but I guess that makes it sound like you can make a living off of it, which is tough. Um, well, I mean, you can earn money off of it, but I wouldn't say a living off of it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I uh, basically, I went through phases. Like, I had a fanfic phase through the 90s and early 2000s, and then I did a whole lot of original novels, and then I shifted into doing indie games. Right. And you have, are, are the only two indie games that you, that have come out so far, Arcade Spirits and Arcade Spirits 2? Yeah, currently the only ones we've got are Arcade Spirits and Arcade Spirits The New Challengers, which is a standalone sequel. And which just came out pretty recently, like earlier this year, right? Yeah, like two months ago, basically. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I didn't manage to finish a full Arcade Spirits playthrough, but I also played through the first uh, four, at least four chapters. I'm at the beach. I think that's chapter five. Oh, yeah. I Great. just started that. Like, I like literally, I think it's the opening of chapter five, right? Because, like, I just saw the beach and I was like, wait, now I need to go to bed. <laughs> and that's the context. Like, when we were recording our, our MTCFF Ultra episode uh, some weeks ago, like, that's that's what I was talking about as well. Um, and I just want to say it's very enjoyable writing. And I appreciate kind of the really flexibility that is in the game about how you can approach it. Uh, like I said, it's the only visual novel that I could describe as a dating sim that I've seen, where you just don't have to play it as a dating sim if you don't want to, among other things. Yeah, we wanted the game to be very approachable and inclusive. Like, whoever you are, whatever you're looking for, we wanted to provide it. So pick any pronoun, romance anyone you want, don't romance anyone at all. Mm -hmm. We have options for basically everybody. It's it's meant to be a game for anyone. Yeah. And if you're not into the romance, there's just the the really amusing alternate history uh, U.S. where things are pretty much the same, except arcades are still a big deal for for various reasons, uh, setting to explore also. Well, you know, there's, yeah, there's so many delightful little pieces of that. And and actually, you know, that's, that's a good question I wanted to ask. Like, you know, I imagine that in writing this, a lot of this was inspired by your love of arcades and arcade games, because I could feel that. And I... Gosh, when we went, we traveled to Japan several years ago and we saw that there was more of a thriving arcade culture there. And it made me so nostalgic and miss growing up with arcades because, like, I don't see a lot of arcades anymore. And they're at least not the hot spots they were when I was a kid in the 90s. So, yeah, the arcade scene has kind of tumbled down a hill into just prize cranes and redemption games and coin pushers and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's basically the bad guys of the Arcade Spirit saga is Deco's Palace, which is basically just that. But in our timeline, like, 
the classic video arcade hung on a few decades longer thanks to not having an industry crash in the 80s. Which, although we attributed that to the, oh, well, the E.T. game was actually yeah. good, and therefore history split. It's like, <laughs> that's just one of the factors. I thought that was really funny, though. Right. You know, those cute little jokes that are peppered in. The references in the game, I think, are amazing. Because, like, even if you don't get them, like, maybe you're, you know, a 20-something or a teenager may not get these older references. They still have this sense of amusement and maybe even, like, a poking into history that a younger person might not know. Yeah, we've already. I've always taken the approach that, like, if you're going to put in a cultural reference, it has to be purposeful. It's not just, mm-hmm. hey, you remember the Thundercats? No, you have to actually like borrow the context and the energy of the original work if you're going to reference it. Like, there has to be a reason to reference it. For example, in the New Challengers, we we quote the Pokemon theme song pretty much right up front. You know, I want to be the very best, like no one ever wants. And it's like, ha, huh, I remember that. But also, it says, okay. I understand on some level that this is a story about ambition and dreams and competition. Mm. So we tried to do that the same with referencing classic arcade culture. It's like, it's not just, hey, do you remember Pac-Man? It's like, why was Pac-Man important? How does that connect to what we're writing right now? It's sort of like Jungian archetypes, right? Like you're trying to connect those theming between pieces of media. I like that quite a bit. What also seemed purposeful to me, and which I don't see a lot, is I I often see in a, a story like this everything being turned into a slightly different XP. Like, you're, you you know, like, there's a game that shows up in Arcade Spirits that's supposed to be Dragon's Lair and slightly renamed. And I, I was like, oh, cool, that's supposed to be Dragon's Lair. That's awesome. But you only do that for the arcade cabinets and games that are, like, plot relevant. The rest of the time, you make offhand mentions of, like, well, yeah, also, there's, there's Donkey Kong. Like, also, there's still Dig Dug. And that still makes it feel like there's still Street Fighter, whatever, just kind of out in the background which makes it feel a little bit more like a, you know, divergent version of our world and less like, you know, I, I don't know, you didn't do that more than you needed to. You only did it as much as you needed to, which I appreciated. Yeah, it's kind of a legal hack. You can talk about mm-hmm. classic mm-hmm. arcade games. You can name them if you put a little trademark symbol and say up front, this is all nominative fair use. We're just talking about things. It's commentary and criticism. But if you actually put Mario on screen, oh, right. the lawyers are going to kick down your door. So anything where we needed a game that was going to be plot relevant, was going to be visually depicted, was going to be an integral part, we went with a, you know, this is similar to this thing, but not really. Right. You know, I was curious about that because as far as I can tell, there's three types of references, right? There's the overt reference where the trademark symbol shows up, like having a birthmark in the shape of Qbert, which (laughs) was one of my favorite lines, the joke your character can say. Um, And there's like the more covert, which is when you give a game like you describe a game like the game where the frog has to cross the road. Everybody knows that's Frogger, but you don't say Frogger. And then there's another one, which is where you have like Mr. Moopy's Magical Maze or whatever it is, or Moopy's Magical Maze. I can't remember the title exactly, but where it's like clearly a reference to a couple of different games. A type of game. Yeah, type of, yeah. But it's like very Pac-Man looking (laughs) on the screen. Like you can see that. And so I was curious, like what was the differentiation, like obviously, right, something you I I hear that something you can show you can't show Pac-Man you can't show you know these titles but there are these kind of three different types of references what prevented you from like making more overt reference you know text reference trademark 
versus Pretty much describing. just a uh, visual depiction, like for something that's really critical and we need to be able to see it, that can't be anything that's actually trademarked. Um, but something we can just discuss as being a background detail or a cultural connotation, that we can go ahead and and I also like doing the implied reference, like you mentioned, you know, that, or like playing that game where the frog crosses a lot of traffic, because it's directly saying, okay, you should be taking the mental image of this extremely busy, extremely dangerous, fast-moving environment around you that you need to navigate. Like, that's the energy that's bringing you to the scene. Yeah, that was kind of my primary curiosity, was like, when these references, like, when it's not necessarily going to be a copyright violation, but it's still alluded to, like, the Frogger one is the one I think of off the top of my head. But I see that there's like some, I don't know, I guess some subtlety there, like dropping trademarks and peppering them all over the work would be kind of inelegant. So I, I like the way you did it. Yeah, you got to be careful with that stuff. You don't want to be too up. You don't want to be too blatant and in your face. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get the Big Bang Theory and nobody wants the Big Bang Theory. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it always bothers me when in a work of fiction, people are like, oh, Star Wars or something. And I'm like, you you can say that you could mention Star Wars. It's a real thing that exists in the world. It's just pulling me out of this. Uh, but anyway, yeah, speaking, backing up a little bit, speaking of invoking, you know, things in from the real life that people are familiar with for a purpose that ties right into fan fiction. And I'm I'm definitely eager to kind of discuss your writing career trajectory and kind of how what you've drawn from it and what it's done for you also sure thing but before we even get into fan fiction um i mean you've you wrote and encountered fan fiction in the context of the internet it seems and you've been on the internet for a long time you've even been doing like notable things i was i i noticed a little project you put on the internet that you still host on your website that apparently got write-ups in time and a few other magazines back in the day. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got access to the internet and got involved with it earlier in your life? Yeah, I got access through my sister who had a dial-up internet account when she went to college. Um, and she was like, hey, you know, Stefan, hey, there's this thing I'm on called the internet at school. <laughs> and it's like, it's like BBSs, but bigger. And at first I was like, well, so what? I'm already on some pretty big BBSs. I don't care. But then a month later, like she showed it to me and I was like, ooh, this has potential. So I was piggybacking off of her account quite illegally for several years <laughs> before we finally got like proper dial-up internet to the house. Um, this is like early 90s. Like I was online like 1992, I believe, wow. as my first year. Wow. And yeah, it was done entirely through modem dial-up, through old PM. You know, the modem tones. Um, and it was all text-based, largely focused on Usenet news groups, which is basically just message boards, and IRC channels and mucks, which are basically like MMORPG infocom text adventure games. Um, a lot of the anime community gathered on a place called Anime Muck, or Anime Mush. It was one of the two. Um, and that's where I met most of the authors that I ended up collaborating with or talking with and reading. That's that's so interesting. I I'm totally aware of you know the Usenet groups and like Altrec Anime Creative and like all those various big places. I'd never heard of a mud or assorted or you know related thing being kind of a big community focal point in that era. Yeah, they were kind of a mix of just chatting OC and actually role playing as characters I see in character. Um, and it was entirely text based. It's basically just you connect to it through Telnet. You uh. Just log into your character, you pick an anime character to play, and you're off to the races. And 
Some of it was spectacularly cringeworthy. I mean, let's be completely honest about that fact. But it was also an invaluable tool for pulling together a community. Yeah, you know, that that's so interesting to me because, I mean, in 1992, I was three years old. So um, I don't have that familiarity of this early internet. And I mean, even, you know, we didn't get the internet in my house until 99, probably, you know. It was still dial-up, but, you know, what were the websites? There's the Cartoon Network website, or I had some Sailor Moon websites I liked. But um, I think it's really interesting to think about these kind of, like, early experiences of networking through the internet, because as insular as I feel like it was in 99 and 2000 2001, it was even more insular back then. Like, people had, it, it was more niche. Like, not every home had a dial-up connection. There was a lot more locality like when I first got started, like I mentioned, it was through BBSs. What a BBS was, was you literally connected by the phone line to another computer that was at the other end of the phone line. It would often only let one person in at a time. So if somebody was logged into that BBS, you were hosed until they logged out. You had to keep redialing it again and again and again until it got free. Um, but because long distance calling fees were a thing back then, you could really only call BBSs that were in your local area which meant I was connecting with authors and anime enthusiasts who were inside my particular suburban zone. And so I got to meet them like in person, I got to meet them online, and it was extremely locality-based. And even when we migrated towards the internet, it was still insular communities, because this is before the days of the web. There was an internet before the web. It just used different things like MUX, IRC, Usenet, Connect. And all of these things tended to involve some locality or at least some insular communities. You know, we sort of breezed through this, but it sounds like by the time you got on the internet, then you were already into anime. Mm. Yeah, I believe I got into anime in high school, which is this would be like the 1990 through 94 era. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an old bastard. Um, and yeah, it, we got into it because like some friend of mine had a bunch of tapes of the Viz dubbed Ranma. Uh-huh. And all the other staples of early 90s, like you know, every anime fan in the early 90s pretty much had the same library because it was all that was available. And mm-hmm. maybe they had some fan subs if we were lucky. But oh, it was yeah. like Lodos War, Ranma. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. Ninja Scroll was coming around at like, the late stage of that. God, that movie was terrible. And stuff like that. And then we got involved and we started meeting other anime fans. We're like, oh, I have a much deeper library than that. And then we started watching things like Yurusei Atsura. And Legend of the Galactic Heroes and Sailor Moon and other 90s staples. I, you know, I'm curious about that, though. Like, I I mean, I don't know. Again, this is another thing where I was like, I got into anime because, like, they started showing it on Saturday morning cartoons, like Pokemon, you know, uh, and then there was Toonami. I'm really curious, how do you find those early VHS tapes? Like, how do you, how would you connect with the people who knew about them? That is it's so curious to me, like, where did this even come from? This love of anime here in the U.S. I, I don't know. Maybe well, you could shed some light on that. Yeah. I mean, it was basically like going viral in the 90s sense of the word because it was entirely word of mouth. It was from friends. Mm-hmm. It was from schoolmates. It was like, hey, have you seen this thing? There was practically nothing on television. at that point. It really had not cracked in. Um, so it was primarily word of mouth, and then you go down to Suncoast Video and you buy some Viz tapes or some AD Vision tapes, and later on Manga Video tapes, and you're on your way. Yeah, I I feel like I experienced the tail end of that, but by the time I was getting into anime in middle school, 
like things were coming out like the the amount of things that were available were was blossoming yeah. and you could go to the video rental store and they had a section you know and the the selection of what they had was terrible but like it was there and it was ninja scroll like <laughs> <laughs> They pushed that hard. No, right? What? Why? Anyway. <laughs> I was going to say it was Ninja Scroll and the Project Aco OAVs, not the movies. Yep. Just the OAVs. Mm. <laughs> forgot and the other that. major the other major vector for spreading this was anime cons. Notably, like in my right. area, it was Otakon and Katsukon. So I'm in oh. like the Washington, D.C., Maryland area. And those two conventions, it's like the primary thing you did, the two things you did there were go to the dealer's room to buy anime swag, including anime tapes. Or go to the various viewing rooms and watch fan subs. And, like, I'm sure it's spectacularly illegal what they were doing, but who cares? And this was how you learned about what was coming out. This is how you learned about what was hot right now. And you had to basically seek it out through people who already had it. So you had already been exposed to all this when you were uh, mucking around on the internet in what appears to actually be anime muck. Uh At a a glance, it (laughs) looks like anime muck's an old one, but they don't say on the website. Um, Yeah. And so you said you were exposed to other anime fans and fanfic writers there. Is that what kind of led you into... Well, I, I mean, you did some other things on the internet, like I mentioned, um, but not like fiction writing. Well, actually, yes, fiction writing. Oh, um, yes? I did a series of cyberpunk sci-fi short stories called The Future We'd Like to See. And this was something I was doing in early high school. And I was uploading them to an FTP site at the time like pre-web it's just a way to store and retrieve files mm-hmm. um so i had been already publishing writing now i had to do it under the pen name two flower which has chased me down to this very day which is a character from a terry pratchett novel gnu and i had to do it because like i said i'm piggybacking illegally off my sister's college internet i couldn't oh. go around calling myself stefan dagny too openly or else somebody might notice hey who's this stefan guy who keeps logging in through jen dagny's account that's so interesting because sometimes I forget, even though we do this podcast, I forget that in the era, the done thing was to use your own name. And so when I'm thinking of like other fanfic writers from back in the day, right. like, you know, Alan Harnum and John Biles and such, they just use their names. And I never quite, it never quite clicked that it was kind of unusual for you to have used an internet handle, like dated before, back to that era. Yeah. Before internet handles were a thing, right? Like, yeah. That, that's why you get to be two flower instead of two flower 63 or something. Yeah, I mean, because it was not really claimed anywhere I went. Now, these days, it usually is. I just use the number two in front instead, where I just use Stefan Gagne's handle, whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, it, for at least the first few years, I was using the pseudonym to try to scoot under the radar until I realized nobody cares. No, nobody's throwing my sister out of school. Nobody gives a crap. Nobody's paying attention. I'll just call myself Stefan Gagne. But for marketing reasons, I'll call myself Stefan, quote, two flower, quote, Gagne. Yeah. Well, I mean, Two Flower is also not only a great reference, but I think a great name. And I mean, to be honest, like, I, you know, fan fiction fans, it seems like that's the name they know you by more. Yeah. Which is interesting, right? Like, do you ever worry, like, or or not worry, but like wonder if people will connect your current work to your past work uh, because the name is different or, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like for a while there, when I started switching over to doing original novels, like they're anime influenced but still version novels i was like man my audience is going to abandon ship because they're looking for anime fanfic and i'm only writing something anime adjacent and like the name two flowers totally carrying through and it's true like the audience dwindled away over the years but eventually you know i didn't really care i was just happy to be creating the things that i wanted to create oh that's nice to hear and like i can say 
of the things I've experienced from you, which is only a couple of your fan fiction, but Arcade Spirits especially, that your work has been pretty solid, pretty consistent. So, And I think the Terry Pratchett influence has never totally left you, it seems. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, mm. Monty Python, like oh, Red, yeah. Red, Red Dwarf. These are the things that were hot in high school in terms of people who were interested in comedy or science fiction. These were the big things. So that influence definitely crept in and it's never really gone away. I loved um, the part in Arcade Spirits where I chose to go to the cafe with Percy. He just seems so nice and sweet and sad. But, you know, you get to the cafe and, um, he, you know, he orders Douglas Adams and you get a Terry. Well, I said, you know, give me what you want. And it was Terry Pratchett. And so they give you, you know, describe the cover of the book that they give you, which is the Terry Pratchett book. And I just loved everything about that. It was so like sweet and nice and referential, which is something that I like about fan fiction. So I think, I don't know, I guess, how would you say like writing fan fiction has influenced like your current work? Well, I mean, the skills that I'm using to develop my current work were developed during those days. It's like, it was extremely developmental for me to tackle all this fanfic, um, get feedback on it from other writers and readers, see what works, see what doesn't work, make spectacular mistakes and learn from them. And I think without my fanfic era, as it were, I would not be the writer I am today. You need to actually sit down and do writing in order to get good at writing. Yeah. Well, speaking of that early era, I I didn't realize you'd written some and, and posted some original fiction before that, because the, the expected trajectory that I would have thought is, oh, fan fiction got me into writing and then I started writing original fiction. But you had written a little bit of original fiction and then you got into fan fiction for some years. And so what drew you into, I guess you probably started with Rodma like everybody did, right? All right. Well, let me back up a little more, actually. Okay. Okay. Please do. Please do. I in freaking elementary school, <laughs> I was writing fanfic. Okay. Also, not a surprise. I was writing fanfic of my toys. Like, I had these little army ants figures, which are these stupid little rubber figures that are like, you know, little yeah. soldier ants. And I wrote an actual story around that. I wrote a story around some barnyard commandos toys. I wrote a story based on a computer game I was playing, Heroes Quest, which eventually became Quest for Glory. So, oh, yeah. Then I, I started doing original fic, although I was still borrowing quite liberally because I was a kid and I was just like, ooh, I like this thing. It's, it's mine now. Um, so it's like when anime came along, I already had been doing fanfic to one degree or another since I was a wee babe. And I was like, oh, I know what to do with this and just went at it. I see. Awesome. So it's more like future we'd like to see was a bit of an outlier in what you'd been writing. Um, yeah, it was like me trying to stretch a little bit while still honestly liberally copying notes from other things <laughs> I, I, sorry this is a bit backing up the previous point but i i really like that you mentioned that that young writing about your toys is fan fiction because it makes me think maybe every kid who was a writer wrote fan fiction right because like i did the same thing i mean yeah. i didn't take it to the you know obviously the like place that you did and but there is always that potential, right? Yeah, I mean, even if you're not literally writing it down on a page, you're still like acting out stories in your mind right. regarding yeah. the things that you love from pop culture and the characters that you're latching on to. 
G.I. Joe and Transformers back when you, I was a kid in the 80s, those were perfect for that because the plots were generally garbage and the show was trash, but the characters were so compelling that you kept coming back to them. And the huge toy line, of course. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're making me just yearn once again for fan fiction based on the bios on the back of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles figures because like you watch the cartoon and then you read these bios and they have nothing to do with it and they seem to be describing this like state of constant medium level warfare between like you know dozens of characters between like the turtles and their allies and you know krang and his allies and also the rat king is there and like i just really wanted stories <laughs> that, that drew on that stuff but well, no I mean, adaptation weirdness in the 80s was very big like gi joe you can find multiple different interpretations of the same characters through comics, cartoons, or the back of the box. And they're all wildly different. Yeah. That's a very fruitful place for fan fiction, it feels. This is something I haven't thought about in a long time, you know, since I was a kid. But yeah, I remember this, like, kind of confusion, this general confusion. Like, this is not the character described on the box. is not the character I saw on TV. That's not the character I read in the comics, like y'all were saying. So you just wonder, like, how does this cohere? And as an adult, you can look back and go, oh, well, this was just a lot of different marketing teams and different writers doing different things. And like probably with the toy line, a lot of people just not caring, not giving a shit. Like, we'll just write some whatever the fuck we want about this. But it is very fruitful ground. And I wonder if anyone has really tried to take all those stories and unify them. Like, I mean, I'm sure someone has, but like. All, I, all I know is way. the Transformers wiki is very thorough and impressive. And, you know, they, they they have everything down to, yes, on this action figure back of the box, it said this. Um, there was a uh, recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think, direct-to-video movie where basically they brought in all the different versions of TMNT, including like the 80s cartoon, and showed all the differences between these versions. Yes, but I think they still didn't have the 80s toy line characters. I would have been so happy. <laughs> but yeah, well, a lot of that early fanfic I wrote was basically trying to fill in the gaps when there wasn't enough narrative for a particular toy line. Like, I would imagine, well, you know, they haven't really... I, I have, like, the 30-second advertisement on commercial, and that's pretty much all the narrative you get. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to fill in the rest. And I'm going to write a story about it. That's such a, you know, relatable fanfiction drive. It's like, there's these gaps in the narrative, and you want to fill them up. Which I guess brings us back up to anime and I suppose Ranma. I think oh, absolutely. W- when I was in, you know, when I was into the anime fanfiction scene in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s, like I, I remember wondering, what, like, why does Sailor Moon and Ranma One Half have such big fanfiction scenes? What is it about these? And I think back in the day, I was like, well, Ranma One Half has such good characters or something. And I was like, no. And now as an adult, I go back and look at it and like, that's not it. It's not that the characters are good as such. I think what I want to propose is that Takahashi sets up all of this, you know, potential energy in all of these situations and all of these characters' lives and traumas and, like, relationships, and she has zero interest in resolving anything ever or moving forward anything ever. And that's why fanfiction authors, I think, were so drawn to it, because every single character and plot arc and character arc and character relationship is just asking for something to be done with it, which nothing ever is in the source. I literally wrote a story exactly about that. It's called Rago and Half the Ends. And oh, it's basically you know, like this treatise on how 
Rumiko Takahashi has basically locked her characters into this endless torture cycle in which nothing is ever resolved, <laughs> nothing is ever developed, nobody ever progresses, and mm-hmm. it's just hell. And how would the characters <laughs> react if they realized that? Well, you know what? I did read that at some point. I didn't remember the contents, but I'm sure I read it. So maybe that was just lurking in the back of my mind for like a couple decades until I started talking about fan fiction on the internet again. Yeah, Ramon is very curious because, like you mentioned, it's less about what's there and more about what's not being given. It causes this yearning, this instinctive, I want to do, I want to see this thing resolve in the fans, not just shipping wars. I'm talking like plot threads, character arcs, character potential, stuff that's left on the table and never used. And that's where all the fanfic dives in, because it's desperately trying to fill in the gaps and make Ranma honestly into something it's not. Mm-hmm. A lot of teenagers, when they were writing fanfic back in the 90s, were like, we want Ranma to be this serious relationship drama with realistic human interactions. And Ramiko is like, lol, punch into sky, lol, look at boob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I, I can remember like reading about two Ranma fanfics in all my years that were something resembling original flavor, and they're still not really. But I, I feel like March of the Pigs kind of maybe sort of was oh in that direction. <laughs> and there was this thing with Ghost and Kugi where like if you squint, it could be something kind of kind of similar to original flavor. It still wasn't though. Cause you just you just can't write you can't write original flavor Ranma. It's impossible. Like a fascinating idea to me because what I was first shown Ranma, oh gosh, maybe I was 10 or 11, you know, watching these tapes. And I tried to watch it again when I was older too. I just didn't get it. I was never a Ranma fan. I was like, okay, the animation's kind of cool. Like uh, the transformation part's kind of cute, blah, 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 blah. But like, I just didn't get into it. But seeing the reason fan fictures or hearing, sorry, the reason fan fiction writers got into it, I'm like, yes, that makes total sense. And not only was this one of the first available things you could watch, so why not? And the animation is, of course, like, pretty. And um, I even own copies of the manga uh, just because I, I love the character design. But like to hear that people just wanted more from the characters in the story and they were so aware, right? Like that, yeah, the characters are trapped in a, a hell basically. I, I, I love think, that. I think some people were more aware than others. Because oh, sure. I, I think Stefan, part of what you're describing is people taking it seriously, but in, including taking the source more seriously than you possibly should. Yeah, that 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 was mm. the primary problem with most Rama fanfic, including a very large chunk of mine, which mm-hmm. is that folks wanted something more out of it than it was actually originally intending to be. It was originally just this screwball, goofy sex comedy, and it was never trying to be anything more than that. And it was going to be this endless sitcom churn. And that's not really what the audience was looking for. But back in the early 90s, like you mentioned, it's earliness and availability. This was one of the only fairly complete releases we saw in the States was Ron the One Half. It was dubbed reasonably well. It was available. It was widespread. So it was the touchstone. There was better stuff out there, sure, but this was what we had. And so therefore, we obsessed over it. We labored over it. We poured over it. We said, here's the things we like about it. Here's the things we don't like about it. We will write stories to try to make it into what we want it to be. And so you mucked around in that for a while. And I I vaguely remember on your website, the description of the story, Ranma, the end, 
like, I forget what wording you use, but it, it was partially you setting aside the entire Ranma setting and being like, okay, I'm done writing about this. Yeah, that was my things. last Ranma fanfic ever. It was like, it was me realizing, you know, this is going nowhere. This is a no yeah. terminal runaround and I'm tired of it. And like as many times since I tried to beat Ranma into a different shape and load it down with some very, very cringeworthy Generation X 90s nonsense. Um, ultimately, it was like, I've gotten as much potential as I can out of this and I want to move on. Let's actually write a story slash treatise on Ranma itself and then do that. Well, you know, not to uh, keep harping on, on, on Ranma too much, but I guess I was curious if, uh, maybe you basically said, but if your inspiration to write for about Ranma was basically just this is the thing that is populating in the culture, or if you had more of a connection to it personally. Um, yes and no. I mean, like it's this is the touchstone. This is where everybody's talking about. This is what has the most fanfics already here. This is where the audience is. But also, I tend to connect more with modern day narratives that are relating real world experiences than I do like Wreckers, Lodos Wars, High D and D fantasy or some of the more high science fiction stuff. It's like, I like to link up to the modern day. I, I like to think, I like to see where we are now, what it says about us as people. And therefore, Ron might appeal to me more. I guess, I mean, it's it's set in the modern day for a certain stretch of the term. Yeah, <laughs> well, the modern day of the 90s. And in as with many of my writings and a lot of other writings, we kind of were very liberal about what the cultural background actually was like. Mm-hmm. Like I, one thing which became a very big sticking point between me and one of my best friends, and this is actually one of the things that inspired that the ends fanfic, is that I described in one of the scenes Ranma lying on a couch at the Tendo household, mm-hmm. and my friend was like, "No, there are no couches in the Tendo household. There are no couches in Japanese <laughs> homes. This is not a thing. You shouldn't be doing this." And I'm like, "It's just an offhand way of showing him relaxing. It's not a huge deal. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be orthodox canon." And they're like, "No, it has to be." And it became this thing where I was like, okay, then I want to push back against that idea. You know, I want to depict the world as I understand it rather than strictly doing tons and tons of anthropological research and trying to make it as culturally accurate as possible. And more power to authors that enjoy that sort of thing, but that wasn't me. Also, I'm pretty sure there were couches in Japanese homes in the 90s, just saying. I mean, yeah. maybe not the Tenzin Dojo, but like... <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, I, you're right. But but but, yeah. but like, what I guess what I was getting at is like, like, no one in Ranma acts like a real person in the 90s to begin with, so how hard do you really need to yeah. try on this? Yeah. Like, e- even in the 90s in Japan, it's like, they're not, they're not people that are, you know, re- realistic or even like imaginable by any stretch of... I know, Amato, I think you told me that Ron was set in the 90s because I just believed it was set in some like weird fantasy martial arts world. I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess it actually, oh, there's a television, okay. Um, I mean, there's literal magic, so. Yeah. yeah. I just didn't, I, I thought it was more like a different era of, I don't know, I didn't remember it very well. But I will also say that I really appreciate the point of like, fanfish can do whatever the fuck it wants, <laughs> so... <laughs> So after you closed out the Ranma chapter of your writing, where did your writing career take you? Slayers. Yeah. And you know what? You were just mentioning when you were talking about Ranma, kind of the lack of kind of shape and character arc and resolution and how that bothered you. And I remember when we went back and read Slayers Reflect, which was like one of our first episodes, um, I was I was struck by how much of a novel it is. It's a novel shaped oh, yeah. novel that does novel things. And was any of that kind of a pushback of like really wanting to do structures and arcs that actually lead in directions? 
kind of the thing to remember is that when I started writing the Slayers trilogy as it ended up being, mm-hmm. um, there was very little Slayers actually available. Yeah. Like most of the first season was available on videotape. Next was not translated yet. Try didn't exist yet. So when I wanted to like explore this world and explore these characters, I had to fill in the blanks. We didn't have a lot of information. So when I was crafting this world, I was doing a lot of world building to basically spackle up the holes in the wall to make the whole thing hang together. And that became very interesting to me because I was like able to fill it in with some of my own ideas. And that's like kind of a no-no when you're trying to do like, you know, original flavor fanfic. But in this case, there wasn't really any other choice. Well, interesting you should say that because that's certainly something about Slayers. Um, But like even when you were writing that, you were drawing on some stuff, some amount of like the background material that was buried in some kind of, you know, author comment book in Japanese or, you know, I did the research on that one. I was like trying, I was digging like, is there any more on the, on the structure of, you know, the Mzoku and the dragons? Is there any more that I could learn about how this world is set up? Like how are all these supernatural entities connected to each other? And I was able to dig up some and I was able to put that in there. Um, but things like what exactly is the sword of light, for instance, mm-hmm. how, well, who is Lena's sister? These are things that were only vaguely hinted at at best. I mean, Lena's sister is still only vaguely hinted at, at least in, in the anime. I guess I haven't watched the newer stuff, but, but yeah, I was going to say, so those resources were out there a little bit on the internet at that time to like, no, I mean, you, you said next wasn't translated, but you use Zelos as like straight into Slayer's Reflect. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the prequel like OAV movies were out, but you have Naga in there too and all that stuff. Yeah, the, the Naga the Naga tapes I saw fan subbed at my college. Got it. And we saw a little, actually now think about it, yeah. We saw a little bit of Next, enough to see Zellos, and I just got drawn to the character immediately. Um, but Next was, okay, now I remember what it was. The first <laughs> season was done, Next was only partially done and only by fans, and okay. Try didn't exist yet. Got so it. So it's like the middle of Slayers unofficially. And so I was digging, like you said, for the more obscure like author notes and background details through things that Slayers fans had cobbled together from various sources and used that to try to direct it and then just patch anything that was missing. It's easy to forget, I think, like after having what how long have we had Wikipedia like and very well vetted Wikipedia, you know, the ability to stream things, it's easy to forget that there was a time when we were just aching for more narratives from this content or for explanations. Like, I remember that a lot from, you know, middle school and high school, like, just wanting more out of this media. And that's what fanfiction really provided. And, and the more I think about it, that's more the reason I sort of dropped off of reading fanfiction is because, well, now I, I had the content at my fingertips, you know, after college, like, you could look something up and you'd see the whole narrative and you didn't need someone else to fill it in. But, you know, re-engaging with this project has made me really value how much fan fiction brought, especially at the time. But still, you know, just, and sometimes, you know, often told stories better than the authors did, filled in gaps the authors never did, you know? Well, that's part of it. I think also we need to remember that this was part of the appeal of being an anime fan back then, was that you felt like an explorer. Mm-hmm. You were discovering things. You were like researching things. You find a little thing. You're like, yeah. oh, cool. And um, it's a very, very different experience now, like you said, with everything being available. 
yeah, there, there was a lot of there was a lot of exploration, there was a lot of discovery, there was a lot of invention. Um, there were ways to basically make the thing your own while paying homage to the original and the things that you love about the original. And that was Slayers. I managed to like take the notes, the very sketchy notes we had about the cosmology of this universe, and I tried to expand out on it because it was clear that the anime was basically expanding out on it. Like this is where it was going, and this was the aspect I liked about it was this sort of weird cosmic horror vibe that I had in a lot of ways. And that eventually led into like this complete apocalyptic gods versus demons storyline at the end of the whole thing. That's interesting because I was going to ask because like something you said about Ranma was that you liked that it was more, I guess, cemented in, in the modern day, whereas Slayers is more of that record of Lodos War. I mean, it's not as high fantasy or as grim, but it's oh. definitely more in that vein of, of fantasy, right? So One thing Slayers I, had going for it, which made it work for me, even though it was high fantasy, is that it was absurd. It had this weird, true, almost British yeah. sense of humor to it where things could be ridiculous and parodying the genre as a whole. There were numerous instances where they did things that were basically mocking the fantasy genre in a lot of ways. Um, and I liked that about it. You know, this isn't related to that point, but thinking back to us rereading Slayer's Reflect, um, it seems like even back then, and this was late 90s, right? It seems like you were kind of conscious of what the themes and messages or like what the, the content you were putting into your stories were. Because I remember us just kind of going around being kind of amazed that chapter one, like the very first, one of the first things that happens in Slayers Reflect character development wise, is that Lena and Gowry have a little like resolution of the sort of like, um, what's the word, misogynistic body shaming offhand comments yeah, that Gowry yeah. did. And like by the end of chapter one, she sits him down and she's like, Gowry, this is not okay, stop it. And he, him being actually generally a good-natured guy is like, oh, okay, that's not okay. I'll stop it. And like, I I mean, that's the sort of thing that I feel like an author would definitely be conscious of needing to grapple with in 2022, but maybe might not have been back when you were writing this. Yeah, I'm sure I dropped the ball in regards to that sort of thing frequently in my work. I will not deny, I will not defend it. But that was one instance where it's like, this is something that was so standout-ish from the original anime. So obviously, like, this feels weird that mm. it felt right to resolve it in the story itself, especially since I was interpreting Gallery as somebody who is not particularly bright, but extremely earnest and extremely sincere. So if you call him out on something like that, he would change his behavior. So that's why I used that moment to basically depict the character that I was interpreting Gallery to be. Well, I, I love that, too, because... You know, if you look at how culture has is kind of evolved recently, you know, we've got Me Too and, you know, a lot of other things that are happening where people are really being called out on stuff that wasn't happening at the time. No. But we also have this kind of like cancel policy, you know, or cancel culture, I think is what they call it, where people are just, you know, and it could be for good reasons or it could not be for good reasons. So to me, to have empathy for the character you know, the empathy for the author and to say, oh, well, we know that what he was doing was wrong, obviously. But to create a character, you know, where you can address that and say, look, if you just talk to this person, explain why they're wrong. Like, Gallery is a perfect uh, kind of like way to do that because we'd always kind of not that smart, <laughs> uh, I guess. I mean, that sounds rude, but, you know, he's, or he's yeah. not that aware, you know, so... But he, if it's, he is empathetic, so this is how you reconcile 
that conflict of an empathetic person who's still making these mistakes. And I think you did it yeah. quite elegantly, honestly, just to be like, yeah, if he's called out, he will make the change because he is an empathetic person. And honestly, I think this comes down to like my growth as an individual between high school and college. I wrote Ranma while I was in high school and I wrote Slayers while I was in college. There was some overlap, but generally that was the span. And becoming more aware and more understanding of these things through college was important. In high school, let's face it, early 90s anime, we were soaking in the background radiation of some really bad thinking regarding oh, gender yeah. and consent and age back in that era. Oh, yeah. And it's like these things <laughs> were presented as normalized through the anime that you're watching. And so when you're young and you're taking these lessons, it's like you don't even intend to admit maliciously. It just sort of soaks in. Like the amount of like sexualization of minors that goes on in anime during the 90s is just off the freaking charts. And it becomes this thing where you just internally realize, oh, this is normal without questioning it because this is what you're being fed. I'm afraid this came up during our discussion of the first part of Ultra. And oh, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Victoria, you're the one who was going to bat of like, look, this, like, not to defend what's happening, but this was all around the whole anime fandom as, like you said, background radiation, Stefan. Like, it yeah. absolutely was. This is honestly one of the things that got me off the anime train eventually, was starting to become more aware of the things that I had just been taking for granted as normalized. Like, the weaponized comedic sexual assault of Ataru and Hathusai, which uh, you guys rightfully called out. <laughs> absolutely. It's like, this was just how the stories were told back then. This was normal. It was, haha, joke is guy grabs girl, guy gets punched. But it's like, that's so, that happens enough times across different animes and different authors that it eventually becomes tiresome and kind of creepy and weird, and you start to get sick of it. Yeah, I mean, somebody mentioned before is it's it's not just bad, it's inelegant. It's, <laughs> yeah. But I will say, um, I guess I'm curious, you know, again, like this uh, probably, you know, when I was younger, you know, and it's hard to like compare timelines because like I am a little bit younger, but like in, you know, back in the day, like it wouldn't have occurred to me, even though I think like for a lot of kids now it would occur to them. Um, I think that's just how our culture has changed. But like, is that something because like we mentioned in Slayers that you called attention to? Is that something you were aware of in like, you know, the other writers who were writing um, MCTFF Ultra? Yeah, acronym, right? to agree. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about Ultra is that I had the chance to course correct once a season with the right. pay-per-view that I could I could I could twist things back to where I wanted them or make things resolve, um, which was often a contortion act. Um, and the result of the massive round robin experience on that fanfic is that like things tended to wobble a lot in terms of tone and attitude and content. Um, and as I was getting older, I was getting more aware of these things. Whereas before I had just been spoon fed a lot of these ideas and without, you know, having any malice or any ill intent, it's just like, I just started believing it. It's bad. And so a lot of things slipped over the, under the radar, which would then pop up on my radar as I got older. Well, tying back to that um, original comment about Gowrie in Slayer's Reflect that launched this off, I just want to also say I um, I appreciate that for that character development, it then ties into the whole like Reflect plot line. It's like, okay, if this is who Gowrie is, then this is who Gowrie isn't, and this is kind of what we're pushing back against. Like, it's not an isolated instant that you had to get get past. You tied it into the rest of that story, and yeah. I just want to really briefly 
ask you, um, the Slayers trilogy and Slayers Demiurge and, you know, your Slayers writing was the first stuff that you wrote that I feel like got really well regarded online that people would point to each other and say, oh, you should go read this. It's really, really good. Um, from 2022, as you're sitting here, what do you remember anything that you're proud of specifically in your writing for Slayers? It was the first time I really, really tried to actually have some thematic underpinnings to the mm -hmm. story, to try to push an idea. And I, I believe for Reflect, it was confronting the worst within yourself. Yep. Like, not just the road not taken, but like the thing that you are not, the thing that you don't want to be, the thing that you're afraid of becoming. Um, this, like I mentioned, this was when I was in college. I, I finally clicked for me. It took so many years for me to understand that stories could be told on more than one level. And what it took for me to finally grasp that, not just think it was an English teacher in high school trying to put one over on me saying that there are themes in stories. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds like malarkey. No, what <laughs> made it click for me were film studies classes in college where I had a teacher who was like saying, okay, yes, Aliens is a kick-ass movie about Marines fighting aliens in space, but it's also a movie about, you know, the masculine aggressive military mindset completely crumbling under the face of a modern threat. It's themes of motherhood. There are all these other things going on that can exist at the exact same time as the kick-ass action movie about shooting Marine, about Marine shooting aliens. And that's when it finally clicked for me that a story can be more than one thing simultaneously. So this layer series for me was an experiment. Can I make something that's funny, that's a character study, and that has some actual thematic underpinnings while still being damn entertaining? So I put a lot of effort into that in order to express all those things simultaneously, whereas before it would just be like, this is a cool idea, I'll do this. Well, it, it's interesting that you should describe that being your ex like your experiment with telling more, more like mature or complicated or multi-level stories, because this is also happening at a similar time to improv fanfic, right? Or, well, um, I'm not entirely clear on the improv fanfic background. Were you the one who set up that website? Okay, here's the history of Impro Manga. Sure, please. It was not the first. The first was right. Impro Manga. That was a site that was set up by Brian Lee O'Malley, who went on to write Scott Pilgrim. Um, okay. I know him in college. That was my brush with fame. Um, <laughs> he set up this thing where basically authors would do like one to X numbers of pages and then hand it off to the next author, next artist. And when I saw Impro Manga, I was so impressed. And I was like, I think I could do this for writing. Like, I can't draw but I could maybe set up improv fanfic. And it wasn't really fanfic because they were all original stories, but you know that was the word. That was what people latched onto. They weren't all original stories. There was a Slayers one. Most of them weren't, though. Yeah, there was a Slayers one. And I believe, I, I believe that one was in Elseworlds. It was like a cyberpunk Slayers Elseworlds that I kicked off. Um, again, modern day settings. I love them. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the idea is that the original was improv manga, and we were copying how they ran things to make Embro fanfic. It was the same pattern. It was the same idea, the same structure. That's crazy to me that the first one was Impro manga, because that seems like such a higher threshold of like people who can draw comics and are willing to do it and have the equipment necessary to get that online. Like it feels so much harder to find manga artists willing to do a few pages than people who are willing to do text writing, no? I don't know. You're kind of forgetting, you know, how prominent the cartooning scene has always been in the underground, Amato. Like, I guess I am. Um, the advent of webcomics doesn't surprise me because cartoonists were eager to move their platform onto the Internet. We'd always been 
making zines and stuff and going to conventions and like distributing things in our communities, like putting it on the internet, that would have been super exciting. Yeah, Imprimato was rising at the same time webcomics were rising. This was all early Mm -hmm. 2000s. And it was basically part and parcel. It's the idea of sharing and collaborating online with your art. Now, you had to have art and writing skills to pull off Impromanga. And let's be honest, often it did not happen. It was (laughs) a flaming disaster. And the same with Impromanga. Every now and then, like an author would take it in a wild new direction and introduce their OC who was better than everybody and could beat them all up and changes the entire plot line around. And then for Ultra, I had to like take all those wild tangents and newcomers and stuff and try to bring it back around in the pay-per-views. And I remember as an Ultra reader back in the day, it was very impressive even at the time, not just that you were trying to resolve the plot threads and trim down the characters and set it up so that it was writable, but that, like you mentioned with Slayers, every time you were trying to find some kind of thematic cohesion to end it with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some through line. And I like it clearly that was not the easiest thing in the world to do. Well, fortunately, one thing that we had to our advantage is, and it's something you pointed out in the last podcast, is just the the wrestling format. Mm -hmm. Is that wrestling storytelling tends to follow a pretty stable pattern. You you have the characters circling each other and interfering each other's affairs and raising the tensions between each other until it all comes to a culminating crash and one big fight at the end of the paper. That's the build. You use that to push characters. You use that to use the face-heel structure to determine who is the person that's going to be enacting and who's the person that's reacting. These were good tools to try to keep the story generally in line. I mean, relatedly, were you or are you still a professional wrestling fan? No, because honestly, WWE started really, really, really sinking into the mire. Vince McMahon, and as has finally come to light, is a sleaze bag and an asshole. I mean, and, that seemed pretty yeah. clear. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> for a but long like, time. Yeah, in, in the 2000s, I, in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was a huge wrestling fan. And then I started realizing these people are getting really, really hurt for my entertainment. And I'm not mm-hmm. comfortable with that anymore. This was around the time of the Chris Benoit murder suicide and Eddie Guerrero dying. Yeah. And it's like, I didn't feel comfortable doing this anymore. I still loved the story form. I loved the art form. I loved the platonic ideal of it, which I tried to express through things like Ultra and Neo Fighters, which I don't think I actually read, which would be awesome. Um, And, you know, I loved the story form, but I didn't like the way it was implemented and what I was seeing on TV. So I kind of fell off the wagon. Sorry, because I know this is like a a serious thing, but I do have to ask, what do you call a wrestling, you know, you call it a federation Franchise? if it's wrestling because it's wwe now which i remembered after i said wwf on air but what do you call it when there's wrestlers together is it a federation uh like you can use federation you can use company um it's really down the more the the units inside that have state have names like a stable uh, for instance a stable is a group of wrestlers under one banner that kind of act as one unit and even if they each have individual goals and individual storylines, they kind of have a, an alliance going. Um, but yes. in terms of an actual complete company or organization, I mean, I guess a federation. It eventually switched to uh, WWE because the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, sued them and said, okay, listen, we've been letting oh, you really? use WWF. We've been letting you use WWF, but we are not happy with what you've been doing with it lately. Change or drop. So oh, they, wow. they just changed to WWE and said, we're entertainment. I mean, I guess that's not wrong. 
Also, what about Lucha Libre? Awesome stuff. Just amazing, (laughs) well-executed technical work. It still does fall, though, under the banner of, like, I'm not comfortable because people are getting seriously hurt taking huge risks. And it's like, I love the art form, and I love the traditions of Lucha Libre, but it's like, we're seeing people getting permanently disabled for our entertainment, and that's not always very comfortable. And very similar to football and boxing. It's so yeah. many sports on it. I mean, even basketball, you know, like not as many concussions, but repetitive, you know, joint injuries, Achilles, you know. There was a very, very short-lived TV series in the 90s, a Mortal Kombat TV series, where they tried to mm-hmm. look at like a wrestling league, where they would have fights every week that were scripted and were part of storylines. And, but it was all, you know, fake martial arts, special effects and stuff. And I think that's like the kind of stunt work plus storyline angle that wrestling was shooting for, but in like a safer, more fantastical direction. But it really didn't last long. It wasn't very well made. I've never heard of that. That's amazing. But yeah, Ultra was basically that. And then Neo Fighters was like the OC's only version of Ultra, which was a little short-lived series. And some of those characters made it over to Ultra when that stopped running. I was going to say, I remember at least one or two Neo Fighters characters and at least one or two Furniture Warriors characters and, you know, Controversial Jack and such from the other Impro fanfic stories. Yeah, there were some girls. all All migrated. It, it seemed to me that Ultra was the popular one and the other ones were other things, at least when I was reading. Is that, a, is that an unfair assessment? No, that's a fair assessment. Pretty much all of the Impro fanfics, some of them were bigger than others, but Ultra was bigger than all of them to the point where it had its own website instead of just being part of Impro. It was the big dog. It was the one that everybody was drawn to. Well, anything else that, um, anything else you want to say about Impro Fanfic as, you know, a phenomenon, as like something that you were involved with in spearheading and writing for before we move on? It was a wonderful community. I mean, as as bonkers and out of control as a complete Red and Robin story can be and frustrating at times, it was still a wonderful community. Part of a lot of the friends that I made there, I still are friends today and have gone on to do amazing things. You know what? Like, that was actually going to be my question. Um, but I will, like, dig a little deeper into it. Because, like, if you've listened to enough of me, you know, I'm Tori the community person. Like, I care a lot about what this, you know, was and is as a community. So I guess my other question is just, do you feel like you develop deep connections with the people who are writing with you? Like that writing was something that brought you together? Are you still in touch with those people? Well, I'm still casual touch over Twitter with a lot of them. Um, but yeah, it definitely brought us together. It's like, like I said, for the early anime community where it's like you're drawn together into groups in order to share in this thing that you all secretly know about that the rest of the world doesn't really clue into. Um, it, <laughs> forms you form pretty strong bonds in the process and i i have noticed on twitter when ultra comes up there's usually like a little cluster of people like responding to each other being like oh man ultra oh yeah like these people who are involved and those were all the longest time authors like Kristen and cold fury and sean gaffney and other folks they, they were mm-hmm. involved in doing like many many episodes of ultra Kristen's chapter is due when she's done <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, there was gonna be an ending for it but it's like it just kept getting put off and put off. And then it eventually got to the point where it's like, it would be uncomfortable to work on it now. And then it'd oh. be like, we've forgotten about it. So it's never getting finished. But that, yeah. that's, that's okay. I think what is there is pretty impressive um, as a body of work and as a you know product of a community as well. Thanks. <laughs> all right. I think that almost leads us out of your 
fan fiction writing as such, because there's these other writing projects that, uh, if I remember right, come chronologically next. And yeah. it was would it be Sailor Nothing or Neverwinter Nights modules next? I'd say Sailor Nothing I was working in tandem with the fanfic days, but that was okay. still an original novel. It was, yeah. it was my reaction to the concept of magical girls, essentially. This, this came out like before Madoka and other like, you know, <laughs> critique magical girl shows. Um, it was a little bit of a mess, but I'm still proud of like trying to tackle some pretty subjects, some, some pretty serious subject matter that early in my career. Yeah, and it feels like really the the line between your fanfiction writing days and after, even on your website, you have to say this is not a Sailor Moon fanfic. And indeed, it's not. It's definitely, it's yeah. absolutely not a Sailor Moon fanfic. But you are clearly invoking so much of like, you're expecting the uh, the readers to have seen Sailor Moon or be familiar with it. Like, even more so than Magical Girls in general, kind of, it's drawing on some imagery and such from Sailor Moon in particular. Yeah, I, I had to put the not a Sailor Moon thing all over it because I still, like, even like decades later, was getting people saying, This is a Sailor Moon fanfic, right? I'm like, No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's like, it's inspired by the tropes and concepts and aesthetics, but it's not, absolutely not a Sailor Moon fanfic. And was this a deliberate choice where you were like, I'm done with fanfiction, I'm writing original works from here on out, which it appears to have been what happened? Eventually, yeah. Like I, I was working on Sailor Nothing and on real estate kind of in tandem. But after the, after I finished that, I was like, I'm really focused on original novels at this point. This is where I'm going. Like maybe they'll have some anime influences, but this is really where I'm interested in going. And then I worked on Anachronauts and then City of Angles and then Floating Point, And then I was off to Arcade Spirits. So it was a lot of novels. Like each one of those things I mentioned was like three or four novels long, but they were all original works. And I kind of left fanfic behind. Is there a reason why you were kind of leaving fanfic behind? Like, it, was it just like, well, this is how I feel now? Or was there something in the communities or the process that was disillusioning or something? A little of column A, B, and C. Like, A, a this isn't where I was in my life. B, I wasn't really that involved in the community anymore. And like, anime in general was starting to weird me out. Like, as I started <laughs> becoming more aware of some of the skeevier aspects of it. And also, like, I wanted something that was my own intellectual property. I wanted something I could, like, maybe sell novels of or merchandise or do something sure. with. You can't do anything with fanfic in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted something that I could point to and say, you know, this was mine, entirely mine, and I can do with it as I want. So that's what original stories were. Oh, excellent. So like, at that point, you were sort of, you'd been in this fanfiction community. You recognized, you know, you had talent like forgive me if i'm extrapolating a lot but it seems like you recognized you had talent you know from the the praise of the community and and you wanted to do your own thing from that yeah Is new that frontiers correct? new frontiers new projects new ideas i wanted to move on to trying something new and original stories felt like the right move for me at that time now i guess the only other transitional thing are the neverwinter nights modules and i remember if i recall correctly you did the penultimate series and you did one other with a Latin name that I can never remember. Alicia Turner, yeah. That, oh, yes. <laughs> and, but when I think back of Penultima in particular, it seems to me there's something of the fanfic about it because by using the Neverwinter Nights engine, you were forced to, like, there's so much that's forced on you, right? You can't change so much about the rule set and, like, what's available to the characters and, you know, the spells and all that kind of stuff. And so I yeah. what I remember most from Penultima is you trying to kind of build a world around the D&D 3rd &D edition rules and kind of explain how some of the things 
fit together or like what consequences these have or, you know, how how a different world than standard, you know, Forgotten Realms D&D might exist within these constraints. Yeah, um, Penultima was a generalized parody of the idea of a D&D world. Of like this idea where you have these fantasy races, and you have magic, and you have swords, and adventuring, adventuring notably. The idea of someone whose whole occupation is just to go out there, start trouble, and get loot and kill things. Um, that was interesting to me. I wanted to examine that, play with that. So a lot of the fantasy parody ideas that were in like the Slayers fanfic migrated over into the penultimate series. Um, I felt, you know, new medium, new audience, so I might as well reuse a few ideas. And the same happened with the Hex Coda, which I never ended up finishing there long story behind that and some of the ideas from unreal estate made their way into that for example and alicia turnham which was more psychological horror and some of the ideas from sale or nothing some of the approaches for that made their way so it all influences each other like yeah i mean i think experience always does influence each experience and like it's something I, I often say to myself is like, I when I draw something in five minutes, I'm like, oh, that must be crap because it's written in five minutes. I'm like, oh, no, wait, I've been drawing for over 20 years. Um, but, you know, sorry, a little tangential to that, which is that, I mean, were you a big, you know, a tabletop RPG player or, you know, I mean, obviously you played Neverwinter Nights, you know, some of that. But like, Amato mentioned the, you know, D&D influence was that something that was prominent in doing the Neverwinter Nights stuff like what was the inspiration oh. I guess I was someone who didn't actually play much tabletop but I read a lot of the tabletop books my sister had a bunch of mm. D&D books I loved reading them when I was a kid I got source books for games I never actually played I got like Toon and Top Secret and I loved Paranoia that was so so much up my alley that game but I never really played them so it was just I loved the world building notes and the idea that these like mechanics which are influenced by the narrative by the world and I treated them like basically like reading nonfiction like reading these treatises on other worlds mm -hmm. so when it came time to do Neverwhere Nights it's like I was very familiar with D&D &D, even though I hadn't played very much because I had read all these books and I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like and I knew I wanted to make fun of and that's how it all played in all right well I think in terms of your writing career, that takes us out of fan fiction and into the realm of original work. And I, at a certain point, stopped following everything you were writing. But Unreal Estate, you've mentioned a couple of times as being, you know, this first kind of anime-influenced longer uh, writing that was not fan fiction that you'd done. I mean, after Sailor Nothing. And then you, I see you have a series of other projects here that I'm not really familiar with. Yeah. Anachronauts, City of Angles, Floating Point. Um. I guess I, I'm not sure we I'm not sure given the theme of the podcast, we need to delve deep into those. But I, I have a few questions. Yeah. yeah, I have a few questions in general. Has this been kind of a consistent thing in your life? Have you been like writing fiction relatively steadily since then? Or has it kind of come and gone as one of your interests? Uh, there was a gap while I was working on the Neverwhere Nights modules until eventually like that that collapsed out from under me. And I like was like, well, I still want to write. So if I'm not writing NWN modules anymore, I guess I'll go back to writing original stories because that seemed to be going well for me before I started getting sidetracked in NWN. So I've been pretty <laughs> consistently writing one thing or another most of my life, honestly. Like I mentioned doing fanfic in elementary. Yeah, I was going to say that the collapse of Neverwinter Nights was a long time ago. That's a lot of years of writing. Yeah, well, th those years basically cover the various trilogies and quadrilogies of City of Angles and Acronauts and Floating Point. That was like 12, 15 years worth of work right there. 
And it seems like in some ways you have been able to publish those, at least in a very small scale. I see like, you know, Amazon book or I don't know if you've had any print runs for some of those. Yeah, no, no actual publishing houses. This was all self-published. I was just right. doing it to do it. Um, I was never expecting to make a living off of it. So I just sort of did it for fun and for the audience that I was going to build. I was always a little worried that like, you know, that audience isn't developing up. It wasn't like it was in the fanfic days where you have built-in audience that love a subject matter and therefore they will come to you and love what you're making. Original, it's like, you need to give them a pretty damn good reason to come look. And I was terrible. Um, so when it came time to do games, like actual full standalone non-mod games, it's like, we got to go with an actual publisher. We need somebody who can actually get our name out there and make people see this. How did you get into game writing from individual self-publishing writing? Well, I was going to PAX East one year and I attended a romance and games panel. And that's where I met Anna Schumann who is my co-writer on the Arcade Spirit series. And she loves collaborating with people. She's always suggesting we should do a thing together. And I thought, when, when I came up with the idea of like, what if we mix my love of like classic retro arcade culture, arcade hardware repair, arcade culture, arcade games, and mix that into a visual novel? And I approached her with the idea and she loved it. And we just ran with it from there. I think that's a good hook because in terms of dating sim visual novels in particular, if you say it's set at a school, I'm done already. Like it just right, can't. You, right. It's, yeah. The, the ground is too well trodden. But with Arcade Spirits, oh, it's set in an arcade. And that already, given the audience of people who play video games that you're aiming at, like that's a good hook, I think. Yeah, it's sincere. It's authentic. It's trying to present not just here are some cute people you can date, wink. No, it's First and foremost, a love letter to arcade culture. That is the driving mission goal. Oh, yeah. The romance is there for the people who want it, but the driving goal was always, let's study arcade culture. Let's study this weird intersection of creativity, fun, entertainment, friendship, and capitalism and see what <laughs> lies there. <laughs> yeah, there's and there's an elegance there, too, in how each character has their own sort of passion. And of course, like your character is trying to discover their passion, but the passions that each of these characters have revolve around the arcade. Um, yeah, I think that was an excellent choice. And ultimately, it's like it, it works on multiple levels because it's a story about managing the arcade, keeping it afloat. And like, what should an arcade be? What do you want an arcade to be? And it's also a story about, you know, finding direction, getting out of depression, dealing with the fact that we're living in current year and current year is current year. There's a lot to it going on beyond just, hey, you remember Pac-Man? Wasn't that cool? <laughs> well, there is some of that too, though, as we mentioned before, um, which I don't know. I'm also one of those people who's like, nostalgia, give it all to me. It will draw Absolutely. me in. But there's a reason for that, I think. And I think that Arcade Spirits kind of like connects that in a way that like a lot of other media doesn't necessarily do. Like they're either aiming for nostalgia or they're aiming for the story. And this is like, well, there's a reason we have nostalgia, right? They, yeah. You know, and I think it works very well, you know, especially, you know, not just your character purchasing the game they remember from their childhood, but in a continuum of these are the artifacts of the world that represent who your character is and maybe who you are if you remember these games. Yeah, like each of the characters has their own special game that is important to them. And it's not just, I like this game. It's like there's reasons. There, there are 
baked in reasons in their background, in their personalities as to why this game resonates with them. And that's arcade culture in a nutshell. It's like, you remember the things you remember, not just because you're wistful for your youth, but because it spoke to you on some level. Now, Stefan, uh, if you've done interviews about arcade spirits, I assume you get this question all the time. And if you haven't, then they should. But I know that you own some arcade cabinets. What is your prize arcade cabinet that you are delighted to have in your home? Right now, Dragon's Lair. The oh. shape of that thing, the rounded uh. marquee, it has like 45 degree notch, long strip, 45 degree notch. It is unique. You look at it, you see it, not just the animation, the whole shape of it, the aesthetic of it, the red to blue gradient on the control panel, everything about it just sings. It's like, this is not a game you could just stuff into any old generic cabinet and it would still be Dragon Slayer. You have to have the whole unit. And you have a whole, you have a whole unit? Well, I mean, it's an arcade one-up replica. It's like, it's the cheap Ikea flat pack of arcade versions. <laughs> like, the nice thing is that, see, I, I have diastrophic warfism. That's my disability. Mm -hmm. And a giant, full-sized arcade cabinet is actually really difficult for me to play. Like, even standing on a stool, it's really a struggle. These games are, in some nice little serendipitous thing exactly the right size for me to just walk up and play because they are like three-fourth scale replicas and so i have all these arcade one-ups and it is an arcade that is literally my size so whenever i want to go to the arcade i just throw a couple switches to power the whole thing on and i've got it i didn't realize they were a different size but functional that's awesome yeah, yeah they, have, they come with optional risers that bring them up to you know uh average adult height but I don't use those. They're, they're literally unassembled and lying in a closet because I don't need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as someone who is not average adult height, I can really... <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's one of those things, like, because, you know, you bring that up, uh, the writing brings up in arcade spirits, like, that um, American games are made for standing and a lot of Japanese games are made for sitting. And I appreciate the idea of standing, but standing height is very different between individuals. So that was something I thought about. Yeah. I, like... Everything Naomi speaks is more or less my own view on things. So it's like <laughs> the Japanese ones are more comfortable, but they tend to be generic cabs. They tend to be yeah. ones you can slot just about anything into as long as it's got a jam of hearts. Whereas American cabs tend to be more unique, more one-offs, more mm -hmm. iconic. Every now and then you'll get like a generic cab or a conversion kit. But generally the ones people remember are the ones which have their own unique look and feel. Oh, yeah. I remember the six-player X-Men fighting game. Oh, like, that's yeah. one of those ones. That stands was almost out. impossible for me to play, though, because due to my disability, I was too short. I'd stand on a box, okay, but they had this giant marquee running under the monitors, which would block my view of the game. I couldn't see the whole screen. Honestly, it wasn't the easiest to play, like, as a tall person any either, because it's got the weird, well, like, joint between the two screens where everything gets kind of messed yeah, up and confusing. Yeah, anyway. yeah. It's but, two but, four by three screens side by side using, like, a mirror, and it's, you like, it only works from certain angles. But you remember the cabinet. Like, the cabinet stands out. Oh, yeah, that was, arcade that was memory. at my shopping mall. I went, like, every, like, I went several times, like, at least once a week down to the shopping mall during a summer break in high school to play in an arcade. And primarily I was focusing on ski ball. I had the goal to basically get as many tickets as I could by the end of summer just for the hell of it. But they had a giant X-Men in the back and I just could only look at it longingly because I couldn't physically <laughs> play it. I well, We're lucky enough in Portland, Oregon to have Ground Control Arcade, which oh, has yeah. 
Well, um, and Wonderland and well, a lot know, of no, others. No, but actually. Ground Control is like the one that's kind of into restoration and stuff. They fixed up an old X Men six player arcade cabinet a while back and like mm-hmm. made sure like they they got the outside looking proper and that kind of stuff. And when you have good arcades in the area that are not kind of like Wonderland or whatever, like mm-hmm. the the arcades at Oaks Park, which are a little theme park, most of them are like the ticket machines. Yeah, but there's one arcade. Games. But there's one arcade in the um, the skating rink that is just machines loaned by ground control, and they've got a Donkey Kong, and they've got a Mario Brothers, yeah. and they've got a Pac Man, and they've got a, a that's you know, sort of a, a the Pac Man that's like down right. like flat that you sit down at. I forget mm-hmm. what those ones are called. And they've got pinball ge- machines, and like because ground control has more of these machines that they can actually fit in their location. You end up with these well, little like overflow arcades because Ground Control is a barcade. Well, so yeah. yeah, they have to. But like, I wish it. They they have two separate spaces, right? They're putting that in Oaks Park, but like people don't come to Oaks Park to play the games usually, right? No. I kind of wish it was more of an arcade and less of like a, you know, lending this out for the kids. But we're yeah. really a bar sort of thing. Because like my biggest problem with Ground Control is it's so fucking loud. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's dark and it's loud because it's a barcade, you know? Like, they have their signature cocktails and their video game themed, and that's great, but... Anyway, sorry, I'm babbling. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. Like, barcades seem to be the only way a classic arcade can survive in this day and age, but it's kind of a pity because then you have all the problems of a bar coming along with your arcade. Exactly, yeah. And we actually address that in Arcade Spirits because one of the options you have when, you, when it comes time to remodel an arcade is you can go barcade. Mm-hmm. And... That adds complications and it adds opportunities. It's like it's a lot of trade-offs. Um, but one notable thing about ground control, I've never been there myself, but I've heard legends. Right? <laughs> the ancients speak of ground control. Um, is that they have a tournament set up for Killer Queen, which is yeah. this amazing joust esports game, essentially. And it was the largely the inspiration behind Queen Bee from Arcade oh. Spirits and her game Fist oh. of Discomfort. Is that like what if arcade esports? Uh huh. That's awesome. I had no idea there was a connection there. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. My co-author Anna, she's up in the uh, in the, the Pacific Northwest, and she's played at Ground Control many a time, and has played competitively things like Smash and uh, Killer Queen. Mm-hmm. And we took those experiences in order to shape the narrative of arcade spirits and the new challengers. Well, that's amazing, and I'm so glad we found that little connection thread. I mean, maybe our city has something to offer after all. <laughs> well, you know, we could also probably talk about arcades for as long as we wanted to. But um, since we're talking about your video game writing career, Arcade Spirits is out. Arcade Spirits the New Challengers is out. And I saw you comment online that now people are coming to you saying like, oh, I can't wait for Arcade Spirits 3. And you have to tell them, uh, we're, we're done. We we made our Arcade Spirits games. That's yeah, over. Yeah, there's like a post-credits teaser at the end of New Challengers that I threw in for fun, but it, I don't feel it obliges me to do a third game. I don't think there's really a lot more story to tell. And what I usually tell people when they come at it, like begging me for this, is like, did you really want the Matrix Resurrections? Is that a thing you actually <laughs> wanted? Or is that a thing you thought you wanted? Um, that was a movie where, like, even in the the meta of the movie, they're like, why are we doing this? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like they did that partially just because they needed to, like, specifically refute in movie forms anyone who is appropriating their metaphor. So, like, I, yeah. I understand why it's there, but clearly, like, they're also kind of done with yeah, the like, Matrix. Well, what I love is that they go to, they go to, like, Neo slash game developer Neo, and they tell him, listen... 
the company has decided they're going to make a Matrix game without you if you don't want to do it yourself. And so uh-huh. Neo finally goes, okay, fine, I'll make it. And I'm like, this could not be a more obvious metaphor <laughs> for how this movie came to be. Totally, yeah. I enjoyed it, but at the same time, on a meta level, I felt their pain. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah, I well, I mean, not to get too tangential, but I like that one more than, like, the other sequels. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely. not going to lie. So. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a good movie. It's just, like, this is... Oh, it's, I know. It's a testament against itself, which I find hilarious well, and fascinating. Here's the thing: like, I think Lana and Lily Wachowski have both come out and like. Sorry, this is a really big tangent. I should stop talking about no, no. this, but we're committed. Lean into it. Like, both kind of like come out and said that like the first Matrix was kind of a transgender narrative, even if they didn't like fully acknowledge it at the time. But I feel like the pressure to make more Matrix movies came from people who had no idea that that was the case. And like maybe even a lot of like cishet bros, you know, being like, Matrix is cool, badass. Look at (laughs) the dodging of the bullets. The fact that the red pill meme exists shows that a lot of people just point point went 15 meters over their head at top speed. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm not really like bitter about people wanting Arcade Spirits 3. I might do it one day. Never say never. But at the same time, I do want to move on to new things. And I've got a new game in the works. That's what I was going to say. It's like, I wasn't getting at like an Arcade Spirits 3 would be bad, just that you are not beholden to make one. And I wanted to ask whether you have anything in the works and whether if you do, you can tell us anything about it. There's so little I can tell about it because we're still, (laughs) we're literally still like working on the contracts and getting everything squared away. But I'll just say it's a visual novel and it's going to have comedy and we're going to be doing some interesting things with the narrative structure that we weren't able to do. And I'm looking forward to showing everybody in this game when we uh, get a little bit more to show. It's going to be, it's going to be, how can I tease this when I actually say it? I'll say it's criminal how much fun it is. I think we'll leave that without comment, but I appreciate having a exclusive heavy hint being dropped here on the podcast. And we'll look forward to seeing what shape it takes. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, so far, I mean, I haven't finished the first Arcade Spirits, so it might become a total pile of shit. I don't know. But (laughs) it's been really good. I'm sorry. I was just kidding. I think it's going to be great. Have you hit chapter six yet? No, no. Just finished oh, chapter boy. four. <laughs> I'm looking forward to your reaction to chapter I've, six. I've already cried twice, though, just following Percy's narrative, so. Get a box of hankies. You're on the way. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I'm ready. I've prepared myself. No, it, the writing is incredible. Just, I just want to put that out there. I think it's a really beautifully done game and not something I expected at all. Like, it's funny i expected it to be funny and it is funny but it's also just so poignant as well i mean that the tagline the unofficial tagline of the entire series has come for the dad jokes stay for the hard gut punch to the feels <laughs> that seems super accurate but it works you know if you say that you know people might go oh yeah i don't know how i feel about that but no it works it works in a really good way thank you well i think we should close this off. Thanks so much, Stefan, for coming on and talking through like your entire writing history, even the parts that maybe you're embarrassed about to some extent by now. And while we're on that note, I'd like to thank you again for hosting all of your stuff. Even the really old writing, which you put on your website and you're like, geez, don't read this. But if you want to read it, here it is. I think the link is broken right now. But yeah, I, I, I do intentionally keep all that stuff online. It's important to stay on. 
and, and, and I noticed, I think it does show some good, like, you know, humility there. And yeah, the link is still broken, but if you're looking for something, you can actually still get at it from the search, which I discovered today when I was tracking those yeah, things Yeah, I'll get that fixed. It's just, it, it, I've had so many other things going on lately, but I will get yeah. that fixed. Look, I'm always impressed that authors are willing to publish their old stuff online to begin with. Like, I'm a writer. There are so many old works that I would never like even my college thesis is like it's still in the library there and i'm like embarrassed that it is you know i'm like oh take it away <laughs> so i'm just always impressed when people are they're willing to share their work one way or another well it's also a matter of preservation it's like not me saying this is a historical work that archaeologists will look upon but no it's like internet culture of the early 90s is in danger of fading and it's not that it was some glorious thing that needs to be preserved, but it is part of the stepping stones which got us to where we are now. And anything in that regard is important to preserve. Game culture, writing culture, anime culture, these are collective parts of our past and should not be forgotten because they can serve as both like a touchstone, a reminder, and a warning. And as someone running the podcast that I am here, I completely agree with you and I'd like to just thank you again there. Uh, can you tell us, though, for modern things, where we can find you and your works on the internet? Certainly. Um, the primary driver for promoting all of our crap is Twitter. And you're going to want to look at at Arcade Spirits VN, Arcade Spirits Visual Novel, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, that's the primary driver for the, for the company that we're making the games through. It'll eventually change to like at Fiction Factory Games, but that's going to be months and months from now. So if you're listening to this podcast archive in the distant future, that's where it is. My <laughs> personal Twitter is at Two Flower, T W O F L O W E R. Um, my personal website is at StefanGagney.com, S T E F A N G A G N E dot com. Um, and that's pretty much everywhere you can find all my stuff. And we can put links to all of those in the show notes as well. And as for the Arcade Spirits games, they are both available on PC and Switch at least, right? All consoles and all, all PC-type platforms. Yeah, oh, we, okay. we put it out as wide as we could. That's great. Um, I don't even know what the consoles are these days. Is it Xbox and PlayStation? I just have a Switch. <laughs> I have a Switch and small children. That's yes, what I've got. There's a PS5 and an Xbox One, oddly enough. Xbox One, great. Well, I guess yeah. you have the PS One, so now you need the Xbox One. Yeah, even Here's though it's a, not the, it's whatever. <laughs> Here's a fun bit of video game trivia to close out on, um, and something that actually happens in Arcade Spirits is that Nintendo was originally going to release the PlayStation. They had a partnership with Sony. The Nintendo mm -hmm. PlayStation was going to be a CD-ROM-based version of the Super Nintendo, and it was all the way to the prototyping phase. And then Nintendo stabbed Sony in the back by going to Philips to work on the CDI of all things. If you've seen those wow. terrible CDI Wand yeah. of Gamelon Zelda games. And that's why we have the Sony PlayStation. Because Sony basically said, we'll make our own console of Blackjack and Hookers. That's a, I had no idea. That's ridiculous. And that's why Final Fantasy stopped being on Nintendo. And that's why all those like crazy... Yep. Whoa. Yep. It's important to know history, man. It's, it, it tells you where you've been and where you're going. It's no, I mean, the history of like the video games, like I, don't, I probably don't know as much as used to fun, but it's nonsense. It, it is, is insane. Like you think about we've got these three primary companies, PlayStation, Xbox and Nintendo. But you think about how they got there and what happened. It's it's I mean, remember Famicom? Like, I don't Anyway, moving on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Just the importance of history is all I'm saying. Yeah. All right. And on that note, this was a special episode of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, an interview with Stefan Gagne. 
You can find his works. Uh, well, I, we just mentioned those websites. They will all be on the show notes uh, where you can track all of those things down. The intro song is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. And you can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Della Rose. You can find our website with the list of all previous episodes. We are now in our hundreds. I mean, 140, like we're in three digits. You can find that at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at retrofanfic, Facebook at retrofanfic, or send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com or leave comments, reviews on your podcast service. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Stefan, apparently. <laughs> We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other and survive our worst timeline where arcades are not thriving as much as they could be. Until next time, take care. Be seeing you. That was the most heartbreaking thing about the series, like the darkest timeline where... I mean, to be yeah. fair, that's that's uh, far from the worst thing about our well, timeline. no, never mind. That wasn't the most but, heartbreaking thing, but... Uh...